messages this morning because of the topic that we'll be discussing that is dis that is introduced for us in this text. I invite with you, invite you to join with me if you would um, in reading God's word. Like I said, anytime the word of God is read, it is probably the most important thing that I will ever say. Anything that comes out of my mouth that isn't God's word is prone to human failure and frailty. Anything that comes out of my mouth that is God's word, of course, is uh, what will affect change in our lives. So as we pay attention this morning to the word of God, I invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to help you understand his truth today. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 this morning, and I invite you to read with me just the first three verses. We'll look at Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he'd done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your powerful truth this morning, that you would help us to heed the symbol of the Sabbath in a way that would honor your redemptive work and lead us to a, a home that is eternal, where our rest can be full and complete forever in Christ. Father, open our eyes of our understanding this morning through the Holy Spirit to, to know what this Sabbath principle is and how it applies to every believer today. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to be confused or distracted uh, by doctrinal differences or theological preferences or the confusion over the eons or centuries of, of interpretation of this principle and even confusing interpretation of this principle. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand and know your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as we look at the text this morning, you say, Pastor, I thought we were done with Genesis chapters two and three. I mean, Pastor Stephen just did this masterful exposition of the last three Sundays in those two chapters. Can't we move to chapter four? And the answer is yes. But I don't know if you noticed when Pastor Stephen preached, he purposely skipped these first three verses. And that is because I wanted to preach on them. <laughs> And he was very grateful because this is a passage that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. So we want to put this in light. In fact, I believe that though God presented this narrative in an unfolding story, piece by piece, bit by bit, that progressively stacks on itself. You know, it's like when you tell the tale of Little Red Riding Hood, you don't jump to the end first, right? You tell it progressively or piece by piece, unless you went to Grandview this last summer and you heard their adaptation of Google Translate and Little Red Riding Hood. That was hilarious. Uh, you'd have to find that on YouTube. I'm sure it's available for you. But no, you would actually see the story unfold as God tells it and intends it. However, the principle of rest and Sabbath, as it were, is a principle that has been confused over the centuries. And yes, even the millennia. So as we look at these three verses, we're going to look at them in light of chapters two and three of Genesis. Uh, and the context of chapter one is the backdrop to help us understand what is this Sabbath principle? I mean, why do we have so many groups that are strict Sabbatarians? Uh, why do we have groups that, that just uh, ignore Sabbath or 
or talk about Sabbath as being a Sunday and not a Saturday? I mean, what is all of this stuff and this talk about Sabbath? Well, today we're going to find, and the title of this message is, of course, based on our theme, Sin Destroys, God Delivers, the Sabbath Symbol. We're going to look at the Sabbath symbol, and for texts, and I want you to write these down because these are the ones that we're going to jump to uh, in throughout the message most often, but Genesis 2, 1 to 3, uh, Exodus 16, this is the first mention, oh, slide change error, um, here we go, Genesis, um, this is not working, by the way, so just FYI, if I'm getting confused up here, it's because, well, more than normal confusion, it's because my my PowerPoint's not working. Uh, so here we go. Text Genesis 2, 1 to 3, uh, Exodus 16, 27 and 28, 28 to 11, Mark 2, 27 and 28, Hebrews 4, 1 to 10. These are some of the primary texts that we're going to go to today. However, with that being said, um, as you note these, there's a pretty big gap between Genesis 2 and Exodus 16, isn't there? And that, by the way, is the first mention of Sabbath outside of Genesis 2 in the Pentateuch. So we're going to discuss why that is in its context. And Pastor Stephen set the stage for me really, really well. So I feel like you have a good knowledge base moving into this. But as we as we are reminded, the Sabbath is a symbol. And I'm going to prove that to you today. As we look at the context of each text, we're going to be reminded that the theme this text displays is that God's sanctified rest is a symbol that is pictured in the Sabbath. God's sanctified rest is a symbol that is pictured in the Sabbath. And this is an important truth that we need to understand so that we are walking in a balanced picture of what Scripture has to say about this topic. So we're going to ask this question today, and it's very intuitive for you to think of this question, by the way. How does Genesis 2, 1 to 3 reveal that a Sabbath is a symbol that points to eternal rest instead of a law to be followed? That's what we want to ask as we answer this from the text. How does this text reveal to us the Sabbath as a symbol uh, to, that points to an eternal rest instead of a law to be followed? And that's a great question that you have set up and asked this morning. So let's find that answer when we look at what the text reveals. We're going to see the text that shows, shows us three facts about God's sanctified Sabbath that provide the key to our understanding. And as we think through this, uh, again, we know from chapters two and three that there was an, uh, an entrance of something into God's perfect creation that actually caused a destruction, a ripple effect, as it were, throughout all of time that has affected all of creation. And we know that as sin. When sin entered into the world, death came by sin. So death has passed upon all men for all have sinned. And so the sin effect is comprehensive. It's total. It, it spans from one end of the universe to the other. All of creation groans with sin and requires a restoration. And so what we understand, therefore, from this Sabbath introduction, when it is placed and what its meaning is, it will help us understand this truth. And this is the truth you'll hear me say often today, that God's finished Sabbath rest is available to all who will receive Jesus by faith. If the Sabbath is a principle of eternal rest, it will be a principle based on something uh, called the finished work of God. We're going to see that pictured in the symbol of Sabbath here in Genesis chapter 2, and we are going to see it uh, masterfully explained throughout 
all of scripture. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through 66 books of scripture uh, today, but we are going to talk about this principle uh, from a textual topic. And so let's take a look as we think about this key. Last time we were together, we understood the pastor Stephen took us on a journey through chapters two and three, and we discovered some really important things about God's original intention for his perfect relationship with mankind. We discovered his intention for mankind's relationship with one another as well. In chapter two, uh, we saw the idyllic marriage and the principles of manhood and womanhood that are laid down for us. Furthermore, we saw that both men and women together were to accomplish God's work of dominion in full and equal partnership under their created roles. In chapter three, we noted that the destruction of God's perfect environment and the marring of mankind's relationship with him and with each other uh, fully decimated all of creation. So we're gonna see today that God's symbolic Sabbath rest ceased. When did it cease? When God's work was finished. But do you know that symbolic Sabbath rest ceased when God's work was finished, but it was picked up again in Genesis chapter 3. God's work was finished until creation was marred. And I'm going to prove that from the text here in just a moment. As we think about this work of God, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll just go, because I've, I've now some of you are going to start looking in your Bibles, and you're going to be thinking about that instead of what I'm telling you. So let me just tell you, God's work showcased itself again in Genesis chapter 3, but the first time God works this time is in making clothing for Adam and Eve. So what did he have to do to cover their shame and their guilt and symbolically, or physically cover their nakedness, but symbolically cover their shame and guilt? Blood had to be shed. Not just any blood, but blood of an innocent had to be shed. So God's work would have to be showcased by the substitute of one life for another. So the work that was perfect and complete in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the rest that God entered into and the fellowship and the perfect Eden and the perfect relationship that God made for mankind where they would both as co-equal heirs together of the grace of life have dominion over all of the creation forever and ever that was destroyed by sin. So sin not only passed upon all men, but it passed rippled through all of creation so that the creation groans now with birth pangs, wanting, seeking, and desiring renewal. So now the work of God would enter again into the garden. And this time the work of God would enter in a means of redemption and restoration of fellowship by the means of blood, a blood sacrifice, one life for another. And then the scripture tells us in Colossians 1 and Colossians 3 that Jesus now holds all things together by the work of his power. So the work of God is has not ceased anymore. Because of sin, God is now sustaining this creation that was once perfect and self-sustaining because this creation is now wearing down, getting old like a garment. It's falling apart because sin entered the world and death by sin. So the work of God continued from Genesis 3 and continues till today. But one day the work of God 
will be finished again. And by the way, God symbolically promised the, the real work of human regeneration would be finished and was indeed finished. And it was mentioned very clearly as finished in one specific spot. And I hope you remember what it was. Seven things Jesus said on the cross. Number six, it is finished. You see, friends, the work of God, the Sabbath rest of God is symbolically instituted here in Genesis chapter two before the fall entered into the world. And so that symbol of God's eternal rest providing a perfect place for mankind then would be picked up and would be carried through the Mosaic law into the present. And so we need to discuss the confusion about Sabbath because there are many divergent ideas about what that is. So track with me this morning as we think and meditate on this truth that God's finished Sabbath rest is available to all now who will receive Jesus by faith. Now, it will be eventually available uh, when we're all glorified, but now we can walk in some semblance of the Sabbath rest that God has provided through Jesus. So that will be, I'm jumping to the end and finishing that uh, as we dive in. So first of all, let's think about this. So I'm going to introduce this, and then we're going to dive into three keys. I'll give you the first key in a moment. The word Sabbath or Shabbat, depending on how you say it, uh, means cease or rest or complete rest. It means desist, stop. It's found in every section of biblical texts. Forms of the word uh, Shabbat occur 104 times in the Old Testament. Roughly 40% of the occurrences are in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Another 40% roughly occur in the prophetic books. And the remaining 20% occur in wisdom literature and historical books. Technically, there are only two mentions of the word Shabbat or Sabbath in wisdom literature. They showcase in Psalm 92.1 and Lamentations 2.6. So basically, 38% are in um, historical books and 2% are in wisdom literature. But we divided into those three Jewish renderings of scripture, 40-40-20, uh, 104 times. Uh, the, the text associated with the priesthood contain most references to the Sabbath, and then the noun Shabbat is, is thought to be derived from the verb uh, Shabbat, meaning to rest, okay? So the noun Shabbat uh, is a rest, a ceasing, a desisting, um, and the, the verb to rest, to cease, to desist, these are the two words that we're talking about. Now, how are we supposed to understand um, Shabbat or Sabbath rest. The question is often posed is a simple one. If all the other um, commands are permanent, because the argument goes this way, um, the, the uh, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, H-O-L-Y, those of you who are in Kids for Truth, remember that's number four, remembers the Sabbath to keep it holy, H-O-L-Y, that's how you memorize that. That is the fourth of 10 commandments. Now, I understand that, um, you know, there is no perfect middle um, in 10 um, because it's even, right? But on the two commandments, uh, the two tablets of the law, the first four are tablets about God and the last six are about human relationships with each other. So the first four uh, are about our relationship with God and the last six are about our relationship with one another. And it's interesting that this one falls under the tablet about God. Remember the Shabbat to keep it holy. Now, the question then 
uh, comes, if the other nine commandments are permanent, wouldn't this one be considered permanent as well? And that's a fair question that we need to let the rest of Scripture assess. And my argument will be this, based on where Shabbat shows up in Genesis and its purpose as mentioned where it's mentioned, and whether it will be permanent for us today in this dispensation. So as we think about this, um, you remember verse 8 of Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day, a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In, in it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters or your male or female servants or your cattle or your sojourner or stranger who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. That is a quote from Exodus 20 that actually quotes Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. So Moses, the divinely inspired author of the first five books of the Bible, who wrote Genesis chapter 2, also then was given the 10, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments by God at the signing of the covenant of Israel for the purpose of a covenant relationship with the people of God. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it, keep it holy was one of those 10 commandments. So the question that's often posed um, is if all of these commandments are permanent, is not this one permanent as well? So there are people who believe that it is. We might call them strict Sabbatarians. They fall generally into two categories. One would be the Seventh-day Adventists. We kind of understand and know who they are. I think it's illegitimate, by the way, to consider a Seventh-day Adventism as a uh, as a, uh, a favorable position because they're, that's a cult. Uh, they believe that the writings of, of Ellen G. White are inspired by God and can be put alongside the Bible. But they identify themselves as faithful to the fourth command. There are also Seventh-day Baptists. This is a smaller group that interpret the command as permanently binding as well, uh, binding. Not quite so strict. You could also identify what you would call as Christian Sabbatarians. They've decided that as Christians, we must keep the Sabbath, but it's not any longer the seventh day. It's the first day of the week. So they shift the command in Exodus from Saturday to Sunday. So as you can see, there's been a lot of confusion over the generations among believers. What, what is this Sabbath? What does it mean? Why? How do we keep it? Do we keep it? Is it important to keep? Why or why not? So there's a classic view among Reformed theologians that was the view of many, if not most, of the Puritans. In fact, if you go all the way back to one of my favorite confessions, 1769 Baptist Confession, you'll find a Christian Sabbatarian article in that confession that Christians are to treat Sunday as a new Sabbath, and they are to follow generally the prescriptions and limitations that were placed upon the old Sabbath. So the question before us today is, are they correct? Was a large portion of Reformed theologians post-Reformation that taught that the Sabbath needs to be uh, uh, recognized and engaged in on Sunday rather than Saturday, and that the Old Testament laws based on Shabbat should be now held by Christians in our modern era. Was that correct? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It's a good question to ask that. And by the way, just because somebody taught something for centuries doesn't mean they were right. Uh, this becomes a difficult argument, by the way, for other interpretive issues. Uh, some will often go back to the ancient church fathers 
and read what they believed and thought, and then hook on to one practice that the early church fathers taught and say, well, this one must be right when there is actually disagreement among the church fathers. Paul deals with this issue often when he writes to the Corinthians in both of his two inerrantly, infallibly inspired letters, first and second Corinthians. By the way, he wrote probably four letters. Only two of them were Holy Spirit inspired. And so he deals with this kind of thing. Paul also deals with this issue in Romans when he talks about some of you value one day above others. And some of you say all days are important. We're going to deal with that passage in a little bit. So the question then remains, what is Shabbat? What is Sabbath? Why is it mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3? Why did Pastor Stephen skip it other than because Pastor Ryan told him to? Well, that's really the answer to that question. You know why. So that I could preach on it. So here's the deal. As we think about this text, we need to understand its original intention. Let me throw a little bit more mud into the mixture this morning, right? Uh, mud goes into water and makes it opaque and off, often impossible to see through. So let's throw a little bit more theological mud into the mixture this morning before we answer your question. As we already mentioned the word Shabbat that occurs 104 times in the Old Testament and New, uh, what happens in Mark 2.27? Did you go there yet? I told you this is a textual message, so we're going to hit a couple of highlighted passages. Mark 2.27 and 28. This is the context of Jesus discussing Sabbath after he violates the Sabbath and being confronted by the Pharisees. By the way, Jesus violates the Sabbath a lot. Um, we've been going through the Gospels on Wednesday nights in our Bible study, and we find out that this is almost like Jesus's like, favorite activity, like his fun pastime. Let's irritate the Pharisees to death by violating the Sabbath over and over and over again. In Mark 2, he does it. Um, he does it again in John 5. Um, he does it in uh, Matthew multiple times and Luke. Um, but the, the one that I find very interesting, we'll talk about later, is when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, he didn't have to do that um, at all. He didn't have to heal him on Sabbath. And he didn't have to tell him to pick up his mat either. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So what does Jesus say then after being confronted with the by the Pharisees of violating Shabbat? He says, man was not made for Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, which was to say that the Sabbath was not to be a burden which men had to conform to, but the Sabbath was to be a delight which men could enjoy. The Jews had turned it into an almost unbearable burden. It said that they had added more than 40 strict requirements of things that you could not do on Shabbat, more than what scripture already said. And so the second thing he said, which was even more shocking, he said, the son of man is the Lord of Sabbath. And thus he declared his sovereignty over the Sabbath. Okay, so now the opaqueness is begin, beginning to filter down in the water of theology this morning. We've read the verses in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where it tells us exactly why God did what he did. We understand its context before the fall. And so now let's talk about three keys in the text that help us understand this. The first key that reveals that the Sabbath uh, reveals this is that the Sabbath highlights God's finished work. Look back with me to our original text in Genesis chapter two, will you? Um, so the Sabbath highlights God's finished work. Genesis two, thus the heavens and earth and all the hosts of them 
were finished. Now, this thus connects us to the end of chapter one, and chapter one ends essentially with this statement. There were six days that God created, and God saw everything that he'd made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. That is a conclusive statement that there is a transition from day six to day seven. Bing, 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 bing. You all got the million dollar prize. Very good. And he says, now the heavens, the earth, and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God's work ended, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work, which God created and made. So we're going to see that the Sabbath highlights God's finished work. Notice that's just exactly what the text says. It literally just says, verse one, uh, all the works were finished. The end. God finished it. So the Sabbath then highlights God's finished work. Now, as we think about this reality, and we're back now in Genesis 2, the chapter opens with the indication that creation is over. We all just read the words about heaven, the earth, and God finishing. You'll note in verse 3, the word sanctified there that shows up in verse 3, seventh day, and sanctified it. We're going to talk about that in a, more in a minute, but the word essentially means holy. It is the word that is translated holy most often in the Old and New Testament. He holified it. <laughs> he holied it. Okay. He sanctified it. So that word meaning holy, it's the, actually the very first time the word holy is used in the Bible. It is an action that God did to that day. He set it apart. He sanctified it. So the root of that Hebrew word sanctify means to separate, but a better way to think of it really would be to turn it into a vertical concept. Rather than dividing it, he elevated it. Uh, this is not a hard concept for us to understand. How many of you have ever seen a, a sports tournament or track meet, um, especially in the Olympics, and uh, you have the, the ceremony where you give out the, the gold, silver, bronze, or whatever the track medals are, right? What do you have? A first, second, and third place, and the tiers are elevated, okay? This is the idea here. God elevates this day, and he wants to highlight something very important. Now, I've tipped my hat to you by telling you that I believe the Sabbath is a symbol just by giving you the title of a message, and then I've, I've even uh, gone further to tell you that I believe that God's finished Sabbath rest is available to all who receive Jesus by faith. So there must be something about this Shabbat that is sanctified and the finished work of God that is in this spot in scripture for a very specific reason to point to something very, very important. So when we ask and answer that question, why is this so important? Why is the finished work of God so important? And the answer is simply this, Apart from this finished work of God, these essentially, uh, you know, 26 essential 24-hour days that have showcased since the close of that day, there hasn't been any further creation with the exception 
uh, of those divine miracles that we read about occasion in the Old Testament. But apart from that, creation ceased on the sixth day. It didn't go on for thousands of years. It didn't go on for millions or billions of years. After six days, it was finished. It was completed. And so that is a special day because it signals that God's entire creation is finished. So there's a second verb in here. So there's three verbs in the text that, that highlight this. Finished is the first verb. The second verb in the text that highlights this finished uh, reality um, is the word rested. When it says in verse two that by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested. Then again, in the verse three, he rested from all the work that he created and made. Thus, this is a unique day because the creation being completed, God stops and rests. Now, wait on, wait just a second. Um, from our systematic theology, we understand that God has attributes that he can't communicate to us. Theologians call them the incommunicable attributes of God, right? That's a wonderful theological word that means nothing to a modern reader. It just basically means that these are things that he cannot share with us because they're unique to him. One of them is his omnipotence, which means he's all-powerful, right? Um, let's just ask you a question here. If somebody is all-powerful, would they ever get tired? Well, we certainly don't, couldn't possibly imagine not being tired. We just spent a weekend uh, retreat with our leadership at Ironwood. We had so much fun. It was exhausting. <laughs> you ever had so much fun? It was exhausting. We had that. We were exhausted from it. We are tired. So God rested not because of fatigue. How do we know that? Because he's God. He's omnipotent. This didn't make him tired. He is setting up a symbolic principle to showcase a very important truth that the Sabbath highlights his finished work. He has done everything to make the perfect place for his perfect creation, for them to have perfect fellowship and perfect relationship, and nothing more is needed. Now, that is a massive key to helping us understand whether the principle of Shabbat needs to be carried into the New Testament dispensation or in even further. If something by Almighty God is finished, do you need to add to it? I mean, that's a pretty rhetorical question. Would you not argue that I just asked you a pretty easy no answer? If something was finished by a perfect being who is all-powerful and he said it was very good, do you need to add anything? And the answer is, nope, done. So what is God highlighting here in his finished work? Well, that's an awesome question. And by the way, just, just for those of you who are throwing it out there, uh, to, to prove, not, you know, being Berean, so you search the scripture daily, so prove that Pastor Ryan isn't the one who's telling you that God is perfect and that he didn't need to rest because he was tired. Isaiah 40, verse 28 tells us that the Lord does not grow weary, okay? The psalmist also says the Lord doesn't slumber or sleep, okay? So the Bible attests, it's self-attesting to the fact that God is all-powerful and he doesn't need to sleep or rest. He doesn't become weary. So he instituted this of his own volition to showcase the one primary truth, the first key to help us unlock understanding Shabbat principle, that the Sabbath highlights God's finished work. When God rested, he was satisfied, which takes us back to verse 31 of chapter one. God saw that all that he made, and behold, it was very good. It was the perfect work. It was the rest of utter satisfaction. And by the way, there would be no more creation for a little while. There was no more work of God to do. God didn't do work again until 
chapter 3. Not very long after this, Adam and Eve, tempted by the serpent, Adam willfully chooses to disobey God and plunges all mankind into sin, and all of creation now is affected by the sin principle, the destructive nature of sin. What is our theme for this year? Sin destroys, but God delivers. And here, this highlight of the Shabbat principle is a highlight by God himself, the God who never grows tired, never grows weary, doesn't sleep, and doesn't slumber, decided to rest. He elevated day seven to showcase something about his finished work. So in chapter three, enter sin. This is, I mentioned this at the very beginning, so let me circle back and I'm gonna pounce on point number two here in just a second. God finished his work, but that finished work was marred, yea, decimated by sin. So the next time we see God work, is in chapter three. And the first thing he does that would be considered work is with his own authority and power, he kills an animal, he sheds the blood of an animal and he clothes Adam and Eve with it. Now that of course highlights the important reality that we will then showcase throughout the rest of scripture. Sin requires death. Sin requires blood. And in this case, sin would require the innocent blood of an animal to temporarily clothe God's perfect creation, Adam and Eve. And that temporary symbolic clothing of, 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 of them would require a blood sacrifice that would happen in perpetuity until the ultimate sacrifice would come, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. So, Shabbat, Sabbath rest, what is the first key that we see? The first key in the text is the Sabbath highlights God's finished work. God's work was only finished for a short time, and then he had to work again, and that work was a work of restoration and redemption. So my question to you is, is God still at work in rest, restoring and redeeming lost humans to himself? And I hope your hearty answer is, hallelujah, yes, he is. And I am one of them, right? God, has his work now is no longer the, the creation of, of this perfect world and this perfect environment. His work now is to restore fallen humanity so that he can then bring them into a new heaven, new earth, and a new Jerusalem that mirrors beautifully the first Eden that he had created. You see, the redeeming finished work of Christ, once for all, for all who call on him, is mirrored in God's original Shabbat. He already provided the perfect Eden with perfect humans, Adam and Eve, with a sinless environment, with all that they needed for perfect relationship with each other and relationship with God and fellowship for all eternity. And they chose to break that. What an interesting idea. Perhaps you've never heard this kind of message on Shabbat. Well, kind of that was my point. I mean, it's not new to me, by the way. This is a pretty normal truth for our thought process, and I believe the text clearly shows this key, the finished work of Christ or the finished work of God that would then be highlighted later when he would provide the finished work of Christ to take away sin for all eternity. 
Because what is God doing? He is working to renew that which was lost in Eden. And he will do so by remaking a new heaven, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And even as we talked about when we preached through the book of Revelation, the, the 144 cubic mile, 140, uh, 1500 essentially cubic mile new Jerusalem is literally the exact dimensions of the Holy of Holies on a massive scale. The Holy of Holies was the place where God's Shekinah glory would dwell within the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in Old Testament Israel, and then eventually in, in uh, Solomon's temple, and then eventually in the new heaven and the new earth with the new Jerusalem, exact cubic dimensions of the holy place. God is restoring it. Now, does that mean Eden was cubic? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, all human illustrations break down at some point, but we certainly do know that in the midst of this earth that God made, he put a garden. And in the midst of heaven and earth, eternally, he will put a new Jerusalem. And there won't be a need for a sun, moon, and stars because Jesus, the sun, will be eternal light. And the gold that used to flow out of the four rivers and used to be harvested in the, hand, in the land of Havilah that we saw in Genesis chapter 1, the gold will actually comprise the streets of the New Jerusalem and the walls of the New Jerusalem. And it'll be so pure that it'll be transparent. So when the light of God's glory through the person of Jesus shines through, the entire city will illuminate all of the heavens and the earth because Jesus's light will radiate through the new heaven. And every foundation will be made of every precious stone, 12 precious stones, and all the gates, the ways into this new, uh, this new city will be named after the gates and foundations, after the people of God, Old Testament Israel, and the people of God, New Testament church. Because the people of God will all be gathered in the place of God's perfect fellowship with perfect relationship, with no more sin, all because of what? Say it. God's finished work. In Genesis chapter 2, God finished his work. And we are meant to sit here and think and ponder living in a sin-cursed world as we read Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3, and think, wow, what would it have been like to live in Eden? What must have this been like? What were Adam and Eve thinking <laughs> right? That's the next thing. You go to Genesis 3, and you're like, guys, what are you doing? Perfect place, perfect relationship. All you had to do was follow the, the Lord, follow the Savior. He said the work was finished. He rested. He was, he was saying, hey, come rest with me. Come recreate. Come enjoy my perfect fellowship, perfect relationship, and perfect creation. The work is done. But no, he had to make more problems. He had to make more work, right? So that brings me to the second key that the text showcases. What is the second key here? The second key in the text that it reveals about Shabbat is that the Sabbath brings God's fellowship blessing. Again, the text tells us this, and we're highlighting this from other places in Scripture. So uh, the Sabbath brings God's fellowship, its fellowship. And so as we think about this principle uh, and we look at 
The second principle, we find this now in verse three, the beginning part of verse three. So now that God has to re-enter creation, he has to do another work. He has to redeem Adam and Eve to restore their fellowship with him and their relationship. But now they live in a sin-cursed world where fellowship will now be broken over and over and over and over. And relationship um, that's established through the covenant between God and man would have to be renewed over and over and over by the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away sin, the author of Hebrews says. And so uh, as we look at this second key, the Shabbat, Sabbath brings God's fellowship blessing. Now, do you hear in these three verses, um, do, you, do you see in these three verses uh, anything about humans? Do you see anything in these three verses about God commanding Adam or Eve to rest? Look, look at him again. Let's just look at him again. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. All the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work with God, which God had created and made. Anything here about a command to observe Shabbat? Nothing. Law of first. First time it's mentioned, it has key elements to it. The first element we saw is a, a finished work, God's finished work. The second element is a work of blessing. We're going to talk about that. But it's interesting because without sin and perfect man in every sense, there was no depletion of his energies when he was doing whatever the simple tending of the garden called for. Can you imagine being uh, Adam and Eve and not getting tired? I can't. I don't think any of us will ever be able to imagine it because we don't understand what it's like to be in a perfect, unmarred, non-sin-cursed human body. We just don't. We, we won't get it until glory. So there's no need to have a day of rest for man. What would he rest from? He's living in paradise with no labor, no sweat, no expended uh, or lost energy. There's no Sabbath law given here for Adam, not at all. Nothing is said about this day being a day of worship. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't prescribe anything for anyone. It's isolated completely to God. He completed his creation. He satisfied with it. He ceased, which is con con constituting rest. And the third verb in verse three, he blessed the seventh day. So these three verbs clearly showcase the key meaning of this text. It's finished. He rested, he blessed. So this day, this is so important for us to understand. He designated that seventh day as a special memorial to his creation and its original perfection. So the Sabbath was a memorial to the finished work of God that he would bless. And the third point, I'm going to tell you in a minute when I'm done with the second point. Okay. The Sabbath highlights not only God's finished work. Did oh, good. My thingy here doesn't show that I'm on this slide. That's really distracting. Sorry. It's not distracting for you because you can't see what the iPad says, but it is for me. Because I'm, I'm, I'm like wondering, okay, do I need to circle back? Did I say that yet? I already said it. So let's move on to the second point. Quit. Okay. So as we look then, it's actually kind of an awkward way as you think about this. Uh, as we look to understand this, this is a day to be elevated above all other days as a memorial to remember the glory of God's perfection in creation. Every seventh day from here on out would be a reminder that God in six days created the universe in perfection. 
Have you ever asked yourself why we operate calendars all over the world in sevens? I mean, we, we Americans, we already have the standard system. Everybody else in the world uses metric. I mean, wouldn't tens, ones, tens, hundreds, thousands, you know, tens of thousands, millions be a whole lot easier? All you got to do is drop zeros, you know? Uh, yet here, uh, God set up our calendar on seven days. I understand the 32 or so governments that France went through from uh, the slaying of Louis the 14th and onward until they finally came up with their latest government, uh, the 32 attempts. And one of those attempts, they actually tried to change their calendar to 10 days. And they tried to change their, their um, uh, 24 hour periods to reflect a 10th system of tenths. And it was a total, utter, abysmal flop and failure. People were getting sick and, and stuff, you know, the, the world, the, the entire country began to implode because they were trying to change the system from sevens to tens. So it's kind of awkward to think about that. But here we find that God instituted this to reject. This is when we reject the series of sevens that God instituted, we're actually rejecting God as creator to reject God as creator in six days is to unbless the seventh day. To say that somehow God used thousands of years or millions of years or billions and billions of years to, uh, to de is to desanctify this day. There's a reason why we live in a seven-day unit and why man has always done so. And it's because every seventh day provides for us a reminder that God is creator, created in six days, and the entire universe. In fact, in Revelation chapter 14, which we've already preached uh, on multiple times before, um, there is the testimony of the of the everlasting gospel where the angels are flying through the heavens and preaching the everlasting gospel that the rest eternal rest has come to god's people and the great dragon the the beast who interrupted paradise with his slithering sinful insertions and temptations is now put down cast out and destroyed forever and ever that's the blessing of the seventh day that's the blessing of the finished work. That's the concept of the symbol of Shabbat or Sabbath. Every seventh day that passes should stand as a testimony to the creator. Every Saturday. Now, America, the Western world with its Christian influences, worked toward a five-day work week. Part of that was the, uh, the underlying sense that Saturday was a day to enjoy creation. I mean, uh, this happens a lot, right? Friday night, the toy haulers come out, right? The, the, the toys get moved out. They get, you know, they get pressure washed off from the mud from the weekend before. They get thrown on the toy hauler because Saturday is a day to go recreate and enjoy God's creation. It's, it is an ingrained reality in the minds of every American and, yay, in the mind of every human that a Saturday is just a day to enjoy God's finished work, this beautiful creation that he's made. Saturday is a perpetual witness to God as creator. Sunday, on the other hand, is a perpetual witness to God as redeemer. Now, I'm not going to talk about that today much more than just mention it. That's a totally another sermon. Why does the New Testament church worship on Sunday? Well, you're going to hear about it on Easter. Why do we worship on Sunday? Well, like I said, come back April the 9th, and I'll tell you why. But in the meantime, here we are. Um, God blesses the seventh day. But, but so we go back to Genesis 2. There's no mention in Genesis 2 of Shabbat or Sabbath being a law. There's no mention of Sabbath being a day of worship. Did you see that in Genesis chapter 2? Does God say he rested and thus you should worship on this day? 
I'm hoping that you're following me and you're thinking through this, okay? One of the blessings and curses of a pastor's teaching gift is that I want to teach for you to understand. And so if I'm holding out for your understanding, if I'm holding out, it's because I want to know that you understand what I'm saying so that I can move on to the next point. And everybody says, we understand, pastor, keep going, <laughs> right? Okay, here's the point. The next time you and I even run into the word uh, of Shabbat, then is Exodus 16. So let's look at that. Exodus 16. What's the context of Exodus again? This is Genesis is beginnings. We are in Genesis. We've done Genesis chapters one through three, which showcases the first little tidbit of human history thousands of years before Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus, God has raised up a deliverer by the name of Moshea or Moses. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court because the uh, Pharaoh prior to that had demanded all the midwives kill the Hebrew children. And, and, and rather than have their, their son murdered, uh, Moses's wife um, puts, makes a, basically makes an ark. Um, that's symbolic, by the way, makes an ark, a little boat to put Moses in and floats him in the Nile no doubt, sadly, as a smart woman always would, she shoves him in the Nile in the spot where Pharaoh's daughter would be going to bathe with all her entourage so that Pharaoh's daughter would see this cute little baby and be like, oh, and that's what happened. So she collects little Moshea. Moses gets raised in Pharaoh's court. Moses recognizes his heritage, and God has a calling on Moses' life to deliver God's people from Egypt Moses does so in, in power, the power that Yahweh provides after spending 40 years in the wilderness getting to know who Yahweh is, the great I am. He comes back in power and authority after 10 plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn and the saving of God's people through, you guessed it, the Passover lamb, where God would see the blood in the shape of a cross on every Hebrew door. You get it? Blood, cross. And he would pass over and not kill the firstborn because that household was covered by the blood of the lamb. It was a foreshadowing, a symbol of the deliverer, Jesus, Yeshua, who would come and deliver all of God's people of all ethnos, of all language groups for all time so that they would enter into God's newly finished work, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. Don't you love connecting all these big dots? Isn't it fun seeing all this cool stuff that God has done and the way he designed it? Sometimes we get lost uh, in the forest because we're stuck looking at all the trees. And don't get me wrong, the trees are lovely. The details of the leaves are beautiful. The stem work and the different types of bark are, are wonderful and masterful. But sometimes we, like Frodo in Greenwood, need to climb to the very top to look where we are along the journey. Right? Some of you will get that Hobbit re reference later. So the Sabbath, the next time we run into this is Exodus 16, hundreds of years have passed. The patriarchs have come and gone. None of them worship as far as we know on the Sabbath. So I don't think uh, any uh, anti-Diluvian uh, that would be pre-flood people worshiped on Sabbath. There's no mention of that in Genesis 1 through uh, 6. And then Genesis 11 and following is post-flood Noah. No mention of anybody worshiping on Sabbath at all. And then Moses comes, the people of Israel, they've been, in, they've been in Egypt for 400 years. 
No mention of Sabbath at all while they're in Egypt. They get into the wilderness. God gives them the Ten Commandments, uh, honor, the, uh, honor the Sabbath to keep it holy, H-O-L-Y, commandment number four. And all of a sudden, Exodus 16, which is the prequel to Exodus 20, Shabbat shows up, Sabbath shows up. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the rest of God's people, no, no Sabbath mention, no worship on, on Sabbath. But in Exodus 16, God's feeding the people manna from heaven as they wander in the wilderness. And the manna comes every day except the seventh day. And the day before they get enough for that day, so they don't have to work on the seventh day. On day six, they get enough for day seven. They're to collect a double portion on day six so they can enjoy God's creation and rest on day seven. It's the first time Shabbat, Sabbath, shows up again in the Old Testament. Massive time gap here, folks. Big, big time gap. We've already acknowledged that there's no human mention in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. There's no uh, worship mentioned in Genesis 1 to 3. So, you know, this was not a law given to a man. It wasn't meant for worship day uh, at that point in time. So what in the world is going on here with Shabbat in Exodus 16? Well, we get to fast forward in Exodus 20 and we find the Ten Commandments, which I just read to you. This was a prescription given so that uh, to set down laws for Shabbat, uh, the Sabbath day, Shabbat. This is the first time any such laws have been given by God. This is very important so that we understand that the Sabbath was not instituted for man in Genesis. It was instituted officially in Exodus during the law giving for the law of Moses. So a further understanding that comes from Exodus uh, is found in Exodus 31. You might want to look at that for a minute. The Lord speaks to Moses in Exodus 31. Go ahead and turn there. I hear some pages. Some of you are punching your little tablets and stuff. That's fine. Exodus 31. Um, and you'll see in verse 12, and he says this, as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you surely, you shall surely observe my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, am the one who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Shabbat Sabbath for it is holy, elevated for you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people for six days work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Shabbat of complete rest, holy, elevated unto the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Shabbat shall surely be put to death. The son of Israel, sons of Israel shall observe Shabbat to celebrate Shabbat throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. So who is celebrating Shabbat here? Israel. How long? As long as the perpetual Mosaic covenant lasts. When did that, when did that get broken? Before, like um, before Moses even gets into the camp. <laughs> you remember the story? I mean, okay, guys, I almost feel like everybody's standing up and going like this a little bit, you know, get the blood flowing. So no, I'm, I'm alert and awake because I got, I had a Jeff special today and it was phenomenal. Thank you, brother. Uh, and so that's a little bit, plus I'm standing this whole time, but I, I just want you to ponder this for a second. Israel gets this for a perpetual covenant as long as the covenant of between Moses and them is, is aligned and in place. But guess when they break it? Moses goes up uh, on Mount Sinai, which is absolutely covered with a cloud of lightning, hail, fire, and ash. He's absolutely terrified, we're told. 
Joshua kind of stays up there on the mountain with him, but isn't observing this. And Moses comes down with the tablet. His face is radiating the Shekinah glory of God so much so they're like, dude, cover your face, man. Please put a veil on your face. You're freaking us out. That's in the inspired Hebrew. That's exactly what it says. No, I'm kidding. That's essentially what it says. You're freaking us out, Moses. Cover your face. And he walks down. He gets about halfway down and he hears what sounds like war. There's, a, there's, there's war in the camp. There's a battle going on, Joshua. You're my captain, man. We got to get back to this group of people that we've left in the wilderness. Uh, there's some kind of war. They're being attacked. And he gets there and no, they're not being attacked. They're paganly worshiping a golden idol. They already broke it. They broke the covenant before the commandments were even delivered. So was this commandment, this fourth uh, honor the Sabbath to keep it holy, was it in perpetuity uh, for the children of Israel? The answer is yes. Was it in perpetuity for as long as the Mosaic covenant lasted? The answer is yes. And that covenant was failed on their part instantly. But it was done away with once for all when Yeshua, the son of David, the proper ruler of Israel, the prophet in the vein of Moses, the great Aaronic high priest who came in symbolic form without father and mother, like the priest king Melchizedek, and entered into the heavenlies once and for all with his own blood after he finished paying your sin debt and mine on the cross. What a huge difference between law keeping and grace receiving. So it's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Why? For in six days, the Lord made heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day, he ceased. He was refreshed or he rested. Here we find the Sabbath is a sign. It is a sign. That is to say, it points to something else. It is a symbol, if you will. It's placed in the middle or near the middle of the 10 commandments because it is a symbol connected to the Mosaic covenant. Let me, let me see if I can continue to help you with this understanding. When God made a covenant with Noah, he promised Noah that he would never destroy the world again. And he gave Noah a sign. What is that sign, Grandma? Oh. The rainbow. He gave, by the way, the rainbow belongs to us. It does. I think it's ironic that others have conscripted the rainbow, and I'm okay if they fly it all over the place, because to me, it is God's sign that he will never destroy the world again through flood. And I say, praise Jesus, he's showing a sign all over the globe that he is still God, whether they acknowledge it or not. He's Lord God. It's a sign. It's God's promise. They're claiming his promise all day long. Hey, you like God too? Awesome. Ooh, don't do that. You'll get stoned. Anyway, uh, so when God made a covenant with Abraham, he made that covenant with Abraham and he designated a sign. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. But the circumcision was a symbol because he told Moses, you need circumcised hearts. You need a spiritual transformation. So he gave the sign of the covenant of circumcision. He gave the sign of the covenant to Noah, a rainbow. Observing with a duplicitous heart, gain nothing. They were to come to God with a, a pure heart of observation. Isaiah 113 says, bring your worthless offerings to me no longer. Incense is an abomination to me, the new moon and Sabbath. The prophet Hosea pronounces a similar judgment on their hypocritical Sabbaths. I'll put an end to all their gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths. It didn't mean anything to observe it outwardly without a heart of love and devotion to God. But what was this symbol for? What was this sign for? Why this sign? I think you'll understand this when I explain it. The Sabbath was a reminder of creation. 
The Sabbath was to remind the people of Israel that they had forfeited paradise, that man had forfeited paradise. The law said to them, obey the law and you'll be blessed. And God said repeatedly, obey this law and you'll be blessed. To show them that righteous behavior would restore a taste of Eden's paradise. Righteous behavior would also point to a future, future kingdom when paradise would be regained. So the two principles, the two keys that we saw, first of all, the Sabbath brings, well, second of all, the Sabbath brings God's fellowship blessing. The first one was the Sabbath brings what? Do you remember? God's finished work. So the Sabbath showcased or highlighted God's finished work. The Sabbath brings God's fellowship blessing. There's a third aspect to the text that teaches us this. And by the way, do you now understand that Sabbath, Shabbat, was only instituted under the Mosaic Covenant for Israel in perpetuity as a sign? Okay, now we're going to get to the third one. Let's take a look at the final key that the text uh, reveals about the Sabbath. The Sabbath brings God's fellowship blessing. Wait, that's a boo-boo. My bad. There we go. God's sanctifying relationship. That was a copy and paste error. Uh, I apologize. It brings God's sanctifying relationship. So the only way to regain a taste of paradise then was obedience to God, righteousness. And they therefore were to consider the importance of obeying the Ten Commandments. They were to consider the importance on the seventh day of examining their own lives and looking at how they were measuring up against God's law. Recognizing sin was objective and bringing them to repentance. So the first seventh day identified God as creator, but the institution of Shabbat in the Mosaic economy identified God as lawgiver. You see the difference? God is creator, perfect finished creation. Sin interrupts it and destroys it. So God gives the law to showcase that only fully righteous people can be in God's economy. How many of Israel could keep the law? Zero, zilch, nada. Not a single one of them could keep the law. Oh, they tried. And they built elaborate systems that in Jesus' day showcased them with uh, wooden boxes attached to their foreheads and their arms that had the actual law in them, but no law written in their heart. They had elaborate robes with beautiful colors that cost a lot of money with tassels that were so long they were dragging the ground, but no knowledge of the true Savior. So we understand that this uh, obvious law keeping was not possible. So they were driven in penitence to plead with God to be merciful to them as sinners. So we understand that this was unique to the people of Israel. And so what do they have? They set up and established elaborate feast days, elaborate worship opportunities. They were to sacrifice sin, trespass offerings, right? So the sacrificial system was in place to showcase that because you cannot keep the law, because you cannot be righteous, blood has to be shed and your sin has to be atoned for. And they were supposed to see that God is the one and only one that can keep the law and atone for your sin. And so the Shabbat was instituted so that they would remember that their creator, God, had made a perfect paradise where they could have perfect fellowship with a perfect relationship. But And then he blessed that day and said, come and enjoy it with me. And because they were sinners, they couldn't have perfect fellowship with a thrice holy God. In fact, think with me just for a moment back to the tabernacle in the wilderness wandering. 
Do you remember the arrangement there in Exodus, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, and Leviticus? It all highlights this. The tabernacle was that temporary place of dwelling. It consisted of an outer um, wall, okay? It was these poles that were that were dipped or created in solid brass. And there were curtains so that you couldn't see over uh, into what was happening in that courtyard. But there was an outer courtyard. And then all around this tabernacle were the Levite clans in, or the Levite tribe in clans. They were camped out at the, uh, at the east entrance of the tabernacle. That was the place that you had. That was the only place the door was. So symbolically, all of Israel, all 12 tribes, they could only get into the tabernacle outer court through a Levite, through a priest. Only the priests could let them in. And by the way, they never could get in. They actually had to stop at the gate, the outer court, and they had to actually give their sacrifice to a priest. And before they gave their sacrifice to the priest, they had to tell the priest what this was. If it was a sin at sacrifice, they had to transfer their sin symbolically onto the animal. They would take the right hand, they would place it on the head of the animal, and they would say, this is for the sins of my family and for me, um, for blah, 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 blah. And the priest would say, I accept your sin. I accept your perfect lamb that's blameless, a yearling of the flock. And I'm going to take it in. And immediately they could stand in the outer court and they would watch that priest slit the throat of the lamb, catch the blood. They would take the blood in a basin and they would sprinkle it on the horns of the outdoor altar. Then they would take the rest of the blood and set it aside and pour it out into a basin that would that would lead the, the blood all the way out of the, of the area. They would take the lamb and they would burn it fully on the altar or, or an oxen or a cow, right? Or a goat or two turtle doves, depending on the, the, you know, whether they were poor or not. But all of Israel was kept out of this sanctuary. They could not get into God's presence except through a priest and only if they offered a sacrifice of blood. And if you get in the inner court, you had the, the brass labor to wash and to ceremonial cleanse the hands before you sacrifice the animal, and then to, to wash the animal before it got burnt on the altar. And then, then when you entered from the, the brass uh, labor and the altar itself on the outside, you'd go into the inner part of the temple. And the inner part of the tab, excuse me, the tabernacle, the inner part of the tabernacle was overlaid with all these elaborate uh, uh, skins, we think maybe manatees or some kind of aquatic animal dyed in, in, uh, in color would have been an outer uh, cloak to, to keep it from waterproof. But we know that goat skin that was dyed red was an inner cloak. So there was multiple layers of coverings of this big giant tent. And by the way, you went from brass poles to silver poles. And when you got to the, the Holy of Holies, you went to gold, fully, totally, 100% gold poles right? So as you got closer and closer and closer to the holy place where God dwelled, you got more and more precious materials and resources, and fewer and fewer people could come in. So only certain parts of the Levites could come into the tabernacle. And then into the holiest place, only one guy could go in once a year. So all of Israel, millions of people were kept out of the tabernacle to get to God's presence. They had to provide a sacrificial lamb and they stayed on the outside. It had to come through a priest. It had to go into the temple and then it had to go into the, the holiest place once a year. All of that was abolished in Jesus Christ. All of it. 
By the way, inside that tabernacle, a table of showbread, what did Jesus say in John 6? I am the bread of life. Inside the tabernacle, a candelabra that was constantly kept burning with the oil of olive trees, symbolizing the the, uh, unlimited supply of God's power and authority and presence. And what did Jesus say? And by the way, it would illuminate the entire tabernacle. What did Jesus say in John 8? I am the light of the world. Then there was an altar of incense right in front of the doorway into the tabernacle. And that was the prayers of the saints. It was a representative of the prayers of the saints. And Jesus, the scripture tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. All the person of Jesus. And then the veil, which we're later told was the veil of Jesus's flesh. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. That veil from top to bottom, 30 feet of of three inch thick uh, cloth was ripped because access to God the Father had now been granted through Jesus the Son for anybody who wants to have in God's presence. Jesus' veil, he was the veil. Then you walk into the holiest place, and there's the altar that's made of pure gold. It's a box made of gold. And inside of the Ten Commandments, an Aaron's rod that budded, right? And on top of the, the lid of the box is the nyala, the covering, the atonement covering where the blood is sprinkled and you have eons or, or centuries of dr- dried blackened bread blood covering this beautiful gold testimony to showcase that it's the blood of Christ that entered into very, God's very presence, uh, overshadowed by the Shekinah glory of the seraphim or the, the glory of the seraphim angels, not the Shekinah glory, that only belongs to God. Uh, the, the seraphim angels who cry out day and night Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And Jesus's blood would be the one and only thing that would allow us entrance into the tabernacle, into the temple, into God's eternal presence. You see, when we look at this text, it reminds us that the Sabbath brings us sanctifying relationship. I've, I have obliterated my time, so let me keep going. By the way, there was actually, you like that? I've obliterated my time, so let me keep going. I can tell you like that. By the way, there was actually no Old Testament law forbidding um, these Jews to do any of these things that Jesus uh, reiterated on Sabbath day. I don't have time to jump in here, but we understand, though, that that the Sabbath observance went away with the rest that belonged to Judaism. We begin to understand why by watching Jesus and how he treated Sabbath. So how did Jesus treat Sabbath? I've said this before, and he only uh, watching Jesus, you see what he did. He, he treated Sabbath any way he wanted. Absolutely any way he wanted. He is the mediator. So we know he's a mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant. It's important to notice that just as he obliterated the sacrificial system, he obliterated the Sabbath system. Now you may recall when we looked at this specifically in Mark, but let's look at several other passages just briefly. Uh, Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus went through the grain fields on Sabbath. His disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain. Remember that one? He really ticked them off for that. By the way, there was actually no Old Testament law forbidding them to, to go through the fields and pick grain on Sabbath. It was allowed. But Jew, the Jews has added endless restrictions to the Old Testament. So when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, haven't you read what David did? You think that's bad? It was David goes in and he takes the showbread, which wasn't lawful. All we did was pick some grain because we're hungry, Right. You all make a big issue out of nothing about not working on the Sabbath. Guess what? While you're not working, all the priests are working. Jesus is basically saying. 
So Jesus, rather than acquiescing to their concern over a violation of the Sabbath, points to other violations of the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, 8, he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He can do anything he wants with Sabbath. He can institute it. He can make commands for restrictions. He can require death for violating violations of those Sabbaths, as he did in the Mosaic Law. Or he can set it aside totally, and he can abrogate it. He can nullify it. There's a transition that's taking place in the New Testament. So as Jesus arrives, everything that is part of the system of Judaism is coming to an end. Look at Luke chapter 14 briefly. The leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath uh, to eat bread. They were watching him closely. They were in front of them. There was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Luke 14, the Pharisees keep silent. So guess what he does? He gets a hold of him and he heals him and he sends him away. He says to them, which of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on Sabbath day? They couldn't make a reply to this. And so they thought healing someone was a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus appears to have chosen Sabbath day for his healings purposely because it struck a blow at the symbol. He's announcing the end of Sabbath. By the way, healing was no violation of Sabbath law either. The Old Testament doesn't say anything about not healing on Sabbath. That was an added thing that the Jews went on to do. What about Mark chapter 2? Let's go back there, and I'm almost done, I promise. Mark chapter 2 is where we first began. He's passing through the grain fields on Sabbath. His disciples begin to make their way while picking the heads of grain. It's the same account that's in Matthew. The Pharisees say to him, look, why are they doing this? It's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he goes through the illustration of David. And you understand, down to verse 27 in Mark chapter 2, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So God designed the Sabbath to be a blessing to bring rest, to bring a day in the week when we could thank God for the glory of his creation. And also he made, he, and be made aware that paradise had been lost. It was a day to show gratitude for creation, a day to repent and seek forgiveness. It was right in the middle of the law because they lived in violation of that law. They didn't live it actively in their hearts. As Jesus said, if you do these things in your heart, it's as if you've committed these sins in the Sermon on the Mount. So our Lord has given the Sabbath to be a blessing to man, to give him rest from his work, a taste of Eden where all rest was before the fall, to give him an opportunity to, to thank God for creation, to examine his life against the law and seeing sin there, seek forgiveness and mercy. Then the result in joy and peace of salvation. Again, he is Lord of Sabbath. He's greater than Sabbath. Sabbath will be whatever he desires it to be, whatever he designs it to be, nothing more and nothing less. It's not moral. It wasn't even given until the time of Moses, and it was abrogated in the time of Christ. So final, final turn, turn to John 5. I mentioned this already, but opposition to Jesus is smoldering under the surface by this time. But this particular healing brought it out in the open. This is the pool of Bethesda. There's a feast of the Jews. They're not sure exactly which, but we could call it a festival or a Sabbath feast. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is in the Hebrew called Bethesda, having five porticos. And then he says, in these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. By the way, some dispute the authenticity of this. I believe it's authentic. I think it was just a, a you know, um, popular a myth or or thing that people thought would, would happen when the water stirred, whoever got in could be healed. So an angel of the Lord uh, is told it goes down at certain seasons of the pool, so forth. Part of verses three and four may have been added later, but that's why they have little brackets here. But in verse five, this picks up in the original text. A man was there who'd been ill for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he'd already been there a long time in that condition. He says, do you want to get well? And the sick man answers, sir, I have no one to put me in the water when it's stirred. But while I'm coming up another step, steps down before me, it was probably some kind of superstitious idea. But Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your bed and walk. Very light straw mat is what this probably was rolled up under his arm. Immediately, the scripture says the man became well and he picked up his bed and he walked. And here's the rub. Now it was Shabbat. Old Testament law didn't forbid walking, by the way, or even carrying your pallet from one place to another. But rabbinic tradition had formulated about 40 different forbidden activities. And guess what? They're found in the Mishnah. And one of them was carrying your mat on the Sabbath. So they yelled at Jesus and said, you violated Shabbat by making this man carry his mat on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had violated the Sabbath. He didn't have to heal the man on Sabbath. He didn't have to command him to do anything that violated Sabbath sensibilities, but he did, and he did it on purpose. Verse 15 says, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing the, these things on Sabbath. He would never violate the Ten Commandments. Did you catch that? Jesus would never violate the Ten Commandments. If he did, he would have not been righteous, thus would not have been able to satisfy the righteous law of God. So by commanding all of these Sabbath breaches were not Sabbath breaches, according to God. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So um, verse 17, he goes beyond this bringing down the whole system. And he says, my father is working till now, and I myself am working. Wow. His is a claim to be deity. Jesus says, my father and I are doing our work before your eyes. We're working for this very reason, verse 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking Sabbath, but he's also calling himself God as, as his own father and making himself equal with God. Jesus was claiming to be God. So these Pharisees were strict Sabbath keepers. They followed the old covenant and embellishments to the letter, yet they missed the whole point of Shabbat. They found no rest from their endless work efforts at salvation. They found no real honest repentance. The Shabbat laws were more shadows of a hope, a weekly reminder that there was a paradise to be regained and was through the means of righteousness. There could be rest from the endless struggle and the horrible burden of trying to earn your salvation. When Jesus came, he brought rest, true rest. The child of God is now a new person, but they rejected Jesus. Under the new covenant, we are healed, washed, and found accepted. We've entered into rest with no other than the creator himself. We've been given righteousness and rejoice in that gift. We cease all effort to earn our salvation. Je Jesus literally did away with Sabbath. But what about the rest of the New Testament? What does the New Testament say to the church regarding Sabbath? Well, let's look at Hebrews 3. Turn there. There's a lot more to be said about this. I'm just trying to give you highlights. But in chapter 3, Verse seven, it's a good place to start. It says this, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me or the day of provocation is the trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. And I swore in my, my wrath, they, they shall not enter into my rest. You see, God's true rest didn't come through Joshua. It didn't come through the Ten Commandments. God's true rest didn't come through Moses. It comes only through Jesus Christ. 
Joshua did for the nation of Israel uh, what God asked him to do. He brought them into the promised land, but even in the promised land, there was no rest for the people of God because they died in unbelief. Verse 12 says this, take care, brethren, that there be not any in you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another, one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end while it is called today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard him? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? The whole generation died in the wilderness. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This kind of rest that is important for us is the salvation rest that comes by faith, by faith in God. Unbelief forfeits rest. The rest of the New Testament writers are concerned about even the emphasis in this book of, of Hebrews, which is a very Jewish epistle. It's not upon Sabbath observance, but it's upon spiritual salvation rest. Look at chapter four, verse one. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you might seem to have come short of it. You see, the rest of the New Testament concerns itself with is not a day of the week. It's salvation. Listen to what he goes on to say, for indeed we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed have entered that rest. There's a, never a command in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. Never. All 10 commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Some of them are repeated over and over again, but the, the Sabbath keeping is never mentioned in the New Testament. It was in the midst of a moral law, a sign and a symbol to lead the people to the rest and repentance. So there's no prescriptions of Sabbath rules anywhere in the New Testament. There's an instruction about behavior on the Sabbath. There's no instruction about behavior on the Sabbath anywhere in the New Testament. In Acts 15, when Jerusalem Council decided what would be required of Gentile believers in the church, they didn't require them to observe the Sabbath. The apostles never commanded anybody to observe Shabbat. They never chastened anybody for not observing Sabbath. They never warned believers about Sabbath violations. They never encountered believers to hold uh, or encouraged believers to hold to the Sabbath. It's gone with one exception. We can go back to the original Genesis chapter two, and we can be reminded that every seventh day that goes by is an opportunity for us to acknowledge the greatness of our creator. We can bless that day by acknowledging God as creator. And then, as I said, and this for uh, that that we can we don't ever really celebrate a Sabbath in the Mosaic sense because it's a ministry of death, but we can celebrate a Sabbath in the Genesis sense as we celebrate God as our Creator, the first day of the week as we celebrate Him as our Redeemer. And so, friends, the Sabbath highlights the finished work of Christ. That Sabbath highlights. Uh, um, wait, sorry. The Sabbath highlights. Uh, blessings, God's fellowship blessings. And finally, the Sabbath brings God's sanctifying relationship. So today we saw that the Sabbath is instituted by God. It showcases his finished work, which brought blessing and relationship to mankind. But because of sin of all creation now groans for renewal and must be remade. 
The Sabbath rest God highlighted in the garden will be available again for all eternity, for all who accept by faith God's eternal means of rest. That's Jesus Christ's finished work of redemption on the cross through his resurrection. Friends, God's finished Sabbath rest is available to all who receive Jesus by faith. Friends, if you're in here today and you still think that you can earn salvation by working really hard, if you've heard preaching from uh, the Mormon faith or the Seventh-day Adventist faith or Jehovah's Witness faith that adds works to your salvation, can I tell you that is like Pharisaism keeping the law. You'll never be able to do it and it won't get you into God's heaven. The only thing that can save to the uttermost is Jesus and all of us must come to God through him. There is no Sabbath keeping. The, the New Testament church needs not keep Sabbath except in the Genesis sense. Let us recognize that it is a set apart, elevated day to remember God is our creator, that that paradise lost will be paradise gained all because Jesus died once for all, for all who call on him. Friend, call on him today if you have not done so. Enter his true spiritual rest. Have a room in your father's house that he's prepared for the last 2,000 years to all of those who love him and are called for according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath. 